by teaching managers to look through the lens of a theory into the future, you can actually see the future very clearly. 2022 saw huge growth for the Innovation Show, and I'm very grateful for our sponsor, Zai, for enabling that growth. We poured all the sponsorship money back into the show to grow it, to get it to more people, more viewers, more audience all over the world. One of the ambitions for the show is to cover content and theories to help you make better decisions in life. And one of the great thinkers, a very humble, amazing man who passed away three years ago is the late Clayton Christensen. To celebrate his work, his theories and his life, we're bringing you in January, a three month series, cataloging all the books that he wrote. He co-authored many books with people like Scott D. Anthony, Michael B. Horn, Karen Dillon, Efoso Ajomo, Michael Rayner. We're also going to talk to Rita McGrath. She was essentially chapter seven of The Innovator's Dilemma. We're going to talk to Bob Mesta. We're going to talk to Taddy Hall, Joseph Bauer, the Hal Gregerson, and bring you all these wonderful authors. But it left us with a dilemma, and the dilemma was... Who will be the guest for The Innovator's Dilemma? Because it was the one book that Clayton Christensen authored alone. And I was so, so grateful to Clayton's son, Matt Christensen, who flew into Dublin especially to record with us last week. And I'm going to bring you a little taster from that magnificent opportunity that I had. I wanted to share it with you ahead of time this full episode will not be released until January 23 in 23, which is the third year anniversary of the passing of the late Clayton Christensen. We're joined today by Matt Christensen. The logical, competent decisions of management that are critical to success of their companies are also the reasons they stumble and lose their positions of leadership. So how can executives simultaneously do what is right for the near-term health of established businesses while focusing adequate resources on the disruptive technologies that ultimately could lead to their downfall. The innovator's dilemma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is interesting. The, the, uh, the dilemma is kind of rooted in, in the, the idea that just because you think you know what should happen doesn't mean you can do something about it. Um, you know, after this book came out, my dad's told this story many times, but uh, he did a lot of work with the company Intel and, and presented uh, his research to, to Andy Grove, uh, who uh, sat through first meeting kind of impatiently, but by the end of it realized its importance for his company. And so I had my dad come back again and again and again and again to train the top managers at Intel. And um, by the end of it, a couple things kind of came out of it. One was that he said, you know, what was really valuable about all this training is it gave us a common vocabulary to talk about counterintuitive ideas. Uh, that, that was a really big thing. But another was that Grove identified that it wasn't really about technology. So in this book, right, the, the, um, the phrase that, that it was initially coined was disruptive technology, not disruptive innovation. That came as a, as a, um, the incorporation of the identification of an anomaly by Andy Grove 
that, that then, then got kind of fixed and expanded on in, in the solution. But Grove's point was in, in one of the classic examples of disruption that the Innovator's Dilemma talks about and the, the demise of the mini computer industry that's based in the Boston area where we live, uh, there is nothing about the technology of a PC that was outside the understanding or capability of sophisticated technology companies like Wang and Nextdoor from Digital and Data General and Prime. The problem was the business model didn't, didn't work for them, made no sense to them. And, and, and as a result, uh, was just something that they would never have interest in uh, under any rational st- set of trying to understand their existing customers and, and what, what, what they would prioritize and look for. So the dilemma is what do you do when a new opportunity is incompatible with your business model? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and our answer to that generally is uh, you need to start a new company uh, you know, and, and kind of separate it or sometimes we use the phrase inoculate it uh, from, uh, from the existing parent company so that it can thrive on a basis that makes sense intrinsically for that opportunity and not on the model that you already have. Um, there, there's a really interesting example. We, we uh, uh, kept very close track of Netflix over time, which we've used disruptive. Um, and uh, if you go back uh, years and years ago, maybe 13 years ago, something like that, in the U.S., there was a, a chain of video stores called Blockbuster Video. And most people, when they would rent uh, DVDs, they would go to Blockbuster, rent DVDs there. And the, the model of Blockbuster was um, that you, you, know, you pay for a few days. If you're late, you pay fines. Uh, they would try to sell you a few other things while you're checking out. So you leave with your movie and they try to get you some, some popcorn and some candy and some soda there uh, and, and other things. Um, Netflix comes along and starts sending DVDs in the mail and, and it's, it's, it's a different model uh, and, and really a very different job to be done. You, you mentioned Bob Mesta. He, he could talk about this a lot more elegantly than I can. But at, at Blockbuster, 70% of the capacity was uh, fairly new releases. So if you wanted to watch some old uh, you know, classic movie or a foreign film or, or even just something that was popular a decade ago, perhaps they would have one co- copy. And uh, whether it was there when you went to rent or not, you know, who knows. Netflix, by doing DVD by mail, allowed you to have almost infinite library uh, and, and they could deploy it all over the place. So the model facilitated something very different. Uh, you know, pay on a subscription basis that was unprecedented. It meant that there were no late fees. And so Netflix began to get a lot of traction through DVD by mail. And what people forget who maybe didn't watch this very closely is, is that Blockbuster launched an initiative that was kind of a Netflix knockoff. Uh, same model subscription that tried to capitalize on the advantages of the store, uh, but also uh, kind of ride on the coattails of this new model. It's called Blockbuster Total Access, and uh, and so you could get get DVDs in, in the mail, uh, but if you wanted to, you could return them to the store, no late fees, etc. Um, and it, it actually was quite successful for a time. But then what started to happen was if you listened to the old recordings of Blockbuster as a public company, Blockbuster earnings calls, quarterly earnings calls, they would talk about things like declining uh, sales per square foot. 
And that is, I think, a predictable outcome of the success of Total Access, right? If I am a happy subscriber to Blockbuster Total Access, then I don't go to the store, right? So predictably, uh, you, you see fewer sales per square foot. But that was just one of the measures that, that Wall Street analysts evaluated Blockbuster on. Um, you know, another is same store sales. I think a lot of the people who managed Blockbuster stores were actually franchisees. So a lot of the franchisees began to say, you're competing with me, you know, that you're violating our franchise agreement. Uh, and, and eventually what it led to was the CEO of Blockbuster getting fired. They replaced him with an executive from 7-Eleven, uh, who on the very next earnings call is talking about how to grow same store sales and sales per square foot and get people back in the store and they killed off total access. And then Netflix just kind of went back, back to normal. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, you know, eventually became the company that, that it is today. I'm not saying th that Blockbuster could have beat Netflix, but it, it, it's a vivid illustration of how difficult it is to set something up as totally different and, and give it the mandate, if necessary, to kill the parent company in order to grow and capitalize on a new opportunity. Uh, so, you know, the only way we've ever seen it work is to have it be separate and independent. But being able to say it that quickly really, I think, kind of obscures that it is a very difficult thing to do well and, and, and frankly, has rarely happened.